Hey, people who like to get their pump, and welcome to the 32nd installment of Scoring at the Movies, the every other Thursday lip wag about sports picks, usually from many years ago, like today's picture, one of our oldest ones yet. We spoil, so be aware of that right off the top. I'm the shy and quiet up-and-comer who gets rattled by bullies pretty easily, Ryan Ellis. And here's the hero of Gold's Gym who has a devastating ability to psych me out, the heavyweight champion of the world of bodybuilding, Chris DiGregorio. Thank you, Ryan, and... Hearing that, I feel a little bit guilty. I hope I didn't throw you psychologically for the recording of the podcast when I hid your Batman t-shirt while you were in the back getting oiled up for the podcast record. It was just a prank, like a little joke. I didn't mean anything by it, I swear. I'm wearing a different Batman t-shirt right now. As it turns out. I have a lot of Batman t-shirts. <laughs> it's a slightly different shade of blue Batman t-shirt. <laughs> I was reading that that prank was not intended to psych anybody out. He just made a gag and didn't realize the guy got so worked up about it. What is it? Mike is the one who's the nice blonde school teacher, and Ken yeah. is the one who's the, not bully so much, but his competition. Yeah, Mike Katz and Ken Waller. Mm -hmm. We were kind of chatting about the making of featurettes. Raw that. iron, yeah. Yeah, raw iron. And one of the things that comes out in that, in interviews with Ken and Mike, is that they were actually really good buddies. And Ken was a prankster, and I think he actually did hide the t-shirt, but it was made up to be this big thing when, in fact, he just hid the t-shirt and Mike asked where it was and everyone's like, oh yeah, Ken hid it. He put it over there. And that got blown up into such a big thing that apparently Ken got booed at all the future bodybuilding competitions he competed in afterwards. So You saw Raw Iron, the making of, which I never did watch, I should have. So you'll be the learned one for this podcast about the making of and all that kind of stuff. There have been many things made from this. There's a sequel called Pumping Iron to The Women. That was in 1985. The director, George Butler, who's also a producer on this, yeah, he well, did that. We'll have to hit that one up down the line sometime. Get the ladies going. <laughs> well, the guys freak me out. The women do. They freak me out even more. <laughs> These people are unbelievable. Let's answer that question right off the bat. Can you score at this movie? Well, it's probably the second most homoerotic movie ever made after Top Gun. You rank it behind okay, Top Gun? maybe it's ahead of Top Gun. It depends on how you view it, right? Because there's so many scenes in this movie where the guys are just so comfortable being around each other either naked or virtually naked. Yeah, I wearing mean, tiny shorts. There's scenes of them in the shower. Sorry, I might get raw and conflated with pumping iron at various points. I think you're right. There's a scene with Arnold in the shower for sure, and I it, think he's in with the other guys. He's like showing his bicep, talking about posing, and it's not meant to be homoerotic at all, as none of these scenes are. Similarly, when they're practicing posing or oiling each other up, it's just a matter of course as part of this sport and this endeavor. That's what their job is. If you're watching this movie with whatever partner you happen to be with who enjoys the sight of big meaty slabs of man muscle getting all oiled up and then flexing it's a 12 out of 10 it's a 12 out of 10 <laughs> my friend let me tell you all the oiling up and toweling off yeah Whew. it's funny you. you think about this kind of thing where you have to be oiled up wrestlers too somebody has to oil part of you up at least you can oil a lot of yourself but you can't do your own back well you see lou ferrigno getting oiled up by his father right. prior to the competition and yelling at more oil dad more oil this is not good oil come on get it on <laughs> they're slapping on my pecs it's a weird thing i don't follow bodybuilding closely i follow a little bit of fitness stuff and a little bit of the participants in modern day bodybuilding and you do work out i do not in a much different way than these guys do obviously when i go to gym i do it in the way that i think probably 95 percent of modern gym goers do and is that i like to exercise as a bit of like a 
de-stressor and to get the blood flowing and try to maintain a level of fitness, but I'm not there to get swole like these guys, right? And if I'm there, I'm there for like 45 minutes to an hour, not probably a couple two-hour sessions a day. Of probably a combined six hours, I would guess, or even more. Yeah, exactly. When it's your whole job to look like this, then you're probably going to put in a shift, an eight-hour shift, give or take. Yeah. The stuff like the oiling that happens in this movie, I don't know if that happens anymore. It might have been replaced by the bronzer. So you see the guys on stage that have that incredibly unnatural orange-copper kind of look to them. Look like Hulk Hogan, brother! They do that, just as I'm sure they did the oiling back then, is just because it helps accentuate the delineations and the Mm. definitions of the muscles. It's gotten to a point now, and I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of modern Mr. Olympias, and no. guys like Coleman, Ronnie Coleman, who I think is now the winningest Mr. Olympia ever. He beat Arnold for the winningest, because Arnie had seven when it was all said and done. He won the six in a row in the 70s, and he, he came, came back, back in 1980. 1980. Yeah, about five years later, I guess it was. Which I think is the most controversial Olympia win ever, because people say he was not in terribly great shape, but just won it based on his reputation as much as anything. Okay. He looked nothing like he did... Well, that's unfair. He didn't look quite as good as he did in this 1975 documentary. But Ronnie Coleman is a massive brick wall of a man, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 300 pounds when he won. And in this movie, they talk about Lou Frigno being the biggest Olympia competitor ever at six foot five and 270 Both pounds. Both and heaviest. And heaviest. You talk about the late 70s as maybe the golden era of bodybuilding. I think that's a phrase that's commonly thrown around. And I would agree with that. If you look at these guys from purely an aesthetic perspective, right? They look like enormous human beings, but they look, like Arnold talks about in this movie, most of them look fairly proportioned. Their shoulders are broad, their waists are fairly narrow, but muscular. It's a big part of the competition is to be proportioned. Exactly. Modern bodybuilders, you look at them, and they're about as wide as they are tall. They're just massive. Their waistlines are huge. They've got sort of like distended, overly developed abdominal look. Their thighs are as wide as tree trunks. It's almost like a grotesque over Oh, I agree. Exertion. Even these guys are, but certainly the modern ones. I've seen pictures here and there the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. I'm sure if you ask somebody in 1975, what do you think of these men? They would have said the same thing. They would have said they're grotesquely huge individuals. And one of the things this movie is credited for doing, in conjunction with other developments of the time in the late 70s, early 80s, is popularizing gym culture, right? Is making it seem a little bit more appealing to the masses and not a very niche meathead kind of thing. The gyms you see in the 1970s portrayed in this film, Gold's Gym, the mecca of bodybuilding in Venice Beach, is a tiny little 5,000 square foot space, I think. Here in Toronto, anyway, our primary gym is Good Life. They've bought out all their competitors, by and large, except the boutique gyms. Is that White Goodman that did that? <laughs> yeah. From Dodgeball? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm a member at Average Joe's, personally, Ryan. I don't know about you. You and White and Michel might be hanging out in White's gym. Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. <laughs> but all of the standard gyms you might walk into are probably four to ten times that size, and that's just like your everyday gym. It's no mecca of anything. Hmm. And this movie almost makes it look like bodybuilding is more popular than it really was at the time because Mm -hmm. Arnold is portrayed as a bit of a star and he was the biggest star in the sport. He probably had achieved by this point a little measure of mass celebrity, right? Not just a niche. Had acted a little at this point in Hercules in New York. Stay Hungry was out the year before this came out. You said 75 a few minutes ago, by the way. 77 is when this movie was out. Yeah, I'm sorry. If I say 75, I mean, I'm talking about Because the competition was 75, yeah. And all the filming was happening. But you're right, it came out 77. And Arnold had such charisma, still does. One yeah. of the reasons why he ever became a huge star is because of his absolute, whether you like him or not, charisma. A man doesn't achieve his level of success in fame and then achieve success in politics if you're not... In three different major fields. Yeah. Dominated bodybuilding, dominated the box office for movies for a long time, 
and then became the governor of California. Before I say this... Oh, by I, the way, I should correct myself. California. <laughs> Governator. You're right in saying whatever you think of the man. We've learned so much about a lot of celebrities in recent years, and... I can't believe he's not been a Me Too guy. You can't watch this movie and the way he behaves, or any movies relating to Pumping Iron and what he did in the 70s. And you ask any of the bodybuilders in this movie, they've gone in interviews and said... There has been no time in their lives, like the 70s and early 80s, because they were just working out, doing drugs. When I say drugs, I mean steroids and cocaine, marijuana, whatever the case may be. But they'll restrain themselves with women. Of course they will. Yeah, of course, of course they, they won't. Of course they won't. Especially when Arnold talks about coming in the gym, coming at home, I'm coming all the time. He was not a proponent of celibacy, I'm sure. At least not, it may be weeks leading up to a competition. I think he talks about that at some point in this movie, but... Whatever you think of the guy and what we know he did, like cheating on Maria Shriver mm-hmm. and having a child out of wedlock, one thing I, I don't doubt with him is, like you said, the charisma and the intelligence. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons I say that is not because he had the success in those three fields you cited. We all know about that. What people don't know about him is when he was still young in Austria and competing, he basically created and ran a successful supplements business in the 60s. Who knew about supplements in the 60s? And then when he moved to California... He started buying property in areas that at the time were not popular, but ultimately the property values skyrocketed and he made a bloody fortune. He was a millionaire before he achieved any kind of Hollywood success based on his real estate dealings alone. So you see him partying and working out all the time and you wonder how does he able to afford this lifestyle? Well, he was independently wealthy already by this age and you don't even have to worry about winning money and bodybuilding, achieving success in Hollywood. He was probably set for life at that point alone. And that's why guys like Franco Colombo or Columbo. Yeah, as it says on IMDb, and it says that, I think, in the credits of the movie, but they always say Columbo, like yeah. the detective. One more thing. Yeah, just, just one more thing. Peter Falk. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> How many leg presses did you do? Oh, that makes sense. But one more thing. One more thing. What about curls? <laughs> the guy has achieved success in myriad ways. Business, politics, acting, all over the map. Well, even within the realm of movies, he goes from being this monosyllabic Conan the Barbarian Terminator actor well cast in those movies mm-hmm. so you can't really criticize him in the sense of he can't act well in those roles he acts perfectly but then he goes from that stuff where he's not quite the king of the box office but his gang there to doing comedy and doing it really well twins and kindergarten cop are well-regarded movies twins is still funny <laughs> kindergarten cop maybe not so hey much, listen but... it's not a tumor <laughs> and but... even junior people rip on that <laughs> they came as a three-pack that's how i bought them as a dvd pack years ago <laughs> twins kindergarten cop and junior because ivan reitman directed all three and devito was in two of them Junior's got some moments, too, and it's some of Arnold's, I'm going to say it, best work. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a bold statement. Especially when it came to comedy. But yeah, you got to credit the guy for how hard he's worked and how bright he obviously is. That work ethic came across in this movie. You can see the dedication that he had. He had to be talked into competing. He didn't want to compete anymore for Mr. Olympia in 1975. He wanted to retire after 1974. After he wins 1975, he immediately retires. Yeah, but the filmmakers for Pumping Iron, and I forget the guy's name. George Butler and Robert, I don't know if it's pronounced Fiore or Fiore, but it's spelled F-I-O-R-E. That's right. They're the co-directors, and then Fiore also was a cinematographer. And I think Butler wrote the book, right? He was the author of the book that led to this movie. Yeah, Butler wrote it the with same title. Charles Gaines. And Gaines right. is the narrator we hear in the movie. Listen, if you're ever going to have an author write a book that deals with bodybuilding, Gaines is the word that you want to use. That's the name you want to because everyone's chasing Gaines in the gym. Mm-hmm. They approached him, I think, after his 1974 Which him, no. Oh, sorry. They oh, approached Arnold. Arnold. Okay. We want to make this movie. They had secured a certain amount of funding or commitments for funding but realized that they needed a personality, 
even if it's meant to be a documentary or as they call it a docudrama because it's not strictly a true mm-hmm. sequence of events the competition is and everything leading up to the competition but there's fictionalized stuff mixed in there it's as a lot well of arnold stories yeah Without him, they realized the movie wasn't going to work. So they convinced him to compete in 1975 for the sixth straight Mr. Olympia just for the purposes of making this movie. And even so, you can see how hard he works at it. And obviously he wins and he looks incredible doing it, right? So give the man a lot of credit. He didn't just mail it in for the purposes of getting up on the big screen, right? He actually went out there and busted his ass to win that. And earned it all over again. Yeah. I was reading that this actually was supposed to originally have been a movie with Bud Court. You probably don't know that name, do you? I do. Oh, you do? So yeah. he was in... Was it MASH? He was definitely an Altman guy. He was in MASH. Okay, he was. And then he was definitely Harry, in Harold and Maude. Harry and Maude. Harold and Maude, yeah. <laughs> when Harry met Maude. <laughs> exactly. Did other things with I'll have what Altman. she's having. <laughs> he also did things in the more recent era with Wes Anderson, I think it is. Well, he's also in Dogma. Bev and I covered Dogma a few months ago. He's the guy who plays God, effectively. The one who gets knocked over by the guys in the beginning. And there's the one in the coma through most of the movie. So Bud yeah. Court was supposed to be building up his body and it was going to be that. But then he realized he wasn't into it, I guess, and dropped out. He thought, this isn't really right for me. This isn't right for what you guys want to do. Yeah, I think... So the whole story changed dramatically because it has nothing to do with an actor building up his body. And I think Arnold would have been the guy working with him. Instead, yes. Arnold is with, I guess, Franco Colombo, who's a friend of his. They're the first two people we see. Well, the ballerina we hear teaching them how to show off their bodies. It makes me wonder when that was because Arnold would have had to know these techniques from before. We see him showing a young guy how to do poses and you think, I don't know anything about bodybuilding. Depiction of the sport, by the way, for me. Sure, I guess it's good. You know more than me, I guess. <laughs> a little but, bit, but yeah. But we see him showing the guy, don't hide your muscles, don't hide your pose. Such subtle things. But why he's with the ballerina is if they're just learning this because both Franco and especially Arnold probably knew all these things already, but that's the first scene you see in the whole movie. These guys yeah. with a ballerina. Franco... And Arnold are best friends, I think, still to this day. They were living together while this movie was being shot. And all of the quasi-competition between the two of them, there's a scene where Arnold says something to the effect of, Franco is a great bodybuilder and a great guy, but he's a child. And when it comes to competition day, I'll be his father and all that kind of stuff, right? Those kinds of scenes were all Arnold playing it up for the camera. I could see him still feeling that way. He has said that he was a super intense young guy at this time. He played a certain amount of mind games with people, but in his words in like 2002 or whatever, he didn't feel like he needed to do that. A lot of the mind games that they build up in this movie were exaggerated to a great degree because he just thought he was the best and A, didn't feel the need to mess with people that way and B, was great friends with a lot of them and didn't want to and thought, if you can beat me, then beat me. I'm not going to win on false pretenses, essentially. And especially when it came to Franco because of how close they were. You mentioned the ballerina scene and I think you're right about that too. I think that's another fictionalized scene because he would have had to have been an exceptionally good poser and I think that's one of the things he was known for in addition to his enormous chest and his biceps was his posing, and he created a number of very famous poses in the bodybuilding world to highlight his own attributes. You think of these bodybuilders as muscle-bound lumps that just go up on stage and flex at you. It's not that easy. The way the ballerina talks to them, okay, you go up there, you flex your biceps, and then you want to show off your back, but understand that they're watching you the whole time. So it's not a question of like, okay, let's hit this pose. It's not herky-jerky, yeah. Yeah, you have to flow from one to the other. Arnold sure does flow. He does. It's performative. I thought that was a really neat little scene, even if it was just a thing that they did strictly for the movie and for the cameras, to really illustrate for me, as somebody that doesn't know a lot about the ins and outs of bodybuilding, just to demonstrate how much goes into building the posing routine. A lot of work goes into it and a lot of And it's something that Arnold and Franco and maybe all of them probably did at one point. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So just in that sense, it's being staged. But it's like that scene in broadcast news where the guy wants to put his boots on, and then the cameraman says, "Wait, I'll get a shot of that." Holly <laughs> Hunter gets worked up. No, 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 sir. If you want to put your boots on, you go ahead and do it. If you don't want to, you don't do it. We're not going to stage anything. Pause. Then the guy just puts his boots on. Yeah. It would have been reality-ish. We've talked about this, Bev and I have, on the documentaries we've covered in the past for 9-11 and Roger and me and Crumb as well. Anytime you turn a camera on something, especially people, you're going to affect what people do. People are going to act a little different with a camera on you. And this movie's a classic example. We just talked a minute ago about psych-outs. This movie's most famous for Arnold Schwarzenegger psyching out Lou Ferrigno, who became, of course, the Incredible Hulk on TV. He's funny and I love you, man, many years later, playing himself. But at this point, he was just a bodybuilder. Deaf as well. Not fully, I don't think. I think pretty well fully. Well, he could read lips a lot. Yes. But there's also scenes where it seems like his father or even Arnold are saying things to him that he seems to be picking up on, but maybe he's not. Maybe he's pretending he picks up on things. Maybe that's just the way you have to live if you're a deaf person to pretend. Like, oh, I got what you meant by that. But that's the most famous thing in this film. It's relatively subtle. I didn't think it was blatantly obvious the way you think you might see hazing, for example, in sports. I guess that's kind of what Arnold is doing to Lou. Mm-hmm. Although it's funny, the last scene in the movie is the four of them, the parents of Lou Ferrigno, <laughs> Lou himself, and Arnold going to the airport after Arnold's beaten Lou in the competition, and Arnold is still fucking with him. The original concept for this movie, as I understand it, was that Arnold was going to be portrayed as the golden boy, the protagonist... The hero, then, The too. hero of the film. Instead, actually, he's the antagonist. And Lou was going to be the dark challenger. This is one thing they talk about in the making of stuff. You look at the scenes of Lou training in new york right and it's like a dark dungeony yeah. kind of look to it done deliberately by the filmmakers yeah and you look at arnold and his friends working out in venice beach and it's bright he was working out seaside effectively and lou's working out in the virtual dank basement the dank mode the dank, dank. <laughs> lou is just too soft-spoken and nice a guy to come across as an antagonist how do you root against this kid He's overcome a lot in his life to bring himself to this point, and you want him to succeed. So there's no way in hell anyone's going to root against that. You know what's funny, actually? Both Arnold and Lou as kids were the cliche, skinny, what do you call that? The 90-pound weakling. Yeah. The kind I remember of... Arnold talked about it a long time ago, and I didn't know Frigno was, too, but they say about how he was a little kid, couldn't play sports, wouldn't have got picked for the football team. Yeah. And then through sheer force of will and desire, worked out in gyms every single day for most of their lives and looked like this. I know. It's crazy. Eh? I wasn't exactly a very big kid. I'm not a very big guy. I'm way shorter than you. I've also had decent shoulders, I guess. I could have probably built up them if I ever wanted to. So I guess you could say anybody could become these kinds of guys if these two were supposedly skinny young... Although they were tall. Arnold's 6'4", I believe, and Fregno's 6'5". I think Arnold's 6'2". Okay, either way, they're tall. They're tall. Yeah, they're both big guys. And that's one of the things that is repeatedly cited in Arnold's favor when talking about is he going to win versus bodybuilder XYZ. His sheer size is a benefit because when you get up there and pose, it just looks more elegant, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Franco's short. Yes. As well, and Lou is so tall. But six foot two is, I guess you could say, the perfect height for any man to be. It's six foot two and eyes of blue, like they say about Duke and G.I. Joe. <laughs> are you calling six foot four freakishly tall? Because I will not stand for that, sir. <laughs> I know several people who are your height. You're not the only one. Or around your height, at least. I'm surprised how many people I know who tower over me. Yeah. With my five seven. It's all that antibiotics or growth hormone in our beef these days. We'll get back to the Lou and Arnold battle from it, but we didn't do this before. We didn't talk about a beer drinking, because you're not drinking beer. You decide to drink water. First time ever in the podcast. You don't have a beer to crack open. It's like going into a competition, Ryan. you got to abstain from certain things to be in the zone for the podcast. Well, I have milk. Milk is for babies. babies. No, I don't have milk. I have my first mixed drink of the day. Some Crown Royal and died here. It's the late afternoon. My night shift's just ended. But he's drinking water over here. I'm just shocked to see that. Pumping Iron was released on Bev's birthday, which is January 18th. 
1977, so two years after the competition that's shown in the film. Later that year, I went to Cannes, and that's interesting because movies back then did that. They would be released in the theaters, and then they'd go to festivals more so than you ever see now. Maybe it happens sometimes these it's days. It's the reverse now, right? Yeah, because you, you build circuit. that up. Yeah. Taxi Driver did the same thing. It came out the early part of the year like this did, and then in May, it goes to France for the big festival over there, and it won. Taxi Driver did the Palme d'Or. My nutshell for Pumping Iron, it's a beauty pageant with shiny, rippling muscles. <laughs> Who is a pageant person? Christy Brinkley? No, she was a model. Speaking of models, they talk about that a little bit. You think about the 70s, the models of the time, Twiggy. Twiggy was the pedestal body type. Pencil thin. Can you imagine how you're viewed in this sport in the 70s if you're like a giant muscle man and it's the heart of the 1970s? You're coming down a little bit off of hippie culture, but it's still counterculture. It's still anti-establishment, anti-Vietnam. Nobody wants to see these muscle-bound kind of guys out there. You want the thin look you got to really be dedicated to your craft to be undertaking something like this in the 60s and the 70s. It really speaks to how much you have to love it. You do it now, and nobody looks at you twice. It's... Look at Hollywood actors. So many of them oh, yeah. have that rippling body. Chris Hemsworth is going to play Hulk Hogan, and it seems appropriate. because as big really? as, Yeah, as big as a lot of those guys are, he, I guess you could say looks like him, but he's already got the body for it to begin with. And that guy, like Hugh Jackman, for about 20 years now, maybe finally Hugh Jackman doesn't have to do this, but they have to eat the same diet, maybe not every single day, but most days. Yeah. For months on end during filming, but in the case of Jackman playing Wolverine so often, probably every single day of your life, it seems, for years, for decades. This movie was made. And work out, by the way, of course, too, constantly. Yeah. Oh, of course. This movie we're talking about made between 75 and 77, so it's 40 plus years old now. It's a product of its time, and if it were attempted to be remade now, and I don't know who you would feature in it if you did, because I don't know of any personalities in modern bodybuilding that match half a dozen of the guys in this one. But you would see a lot of discussion about things like nutrition and supplementation Definitely, and yep. stuff, which you get zero of in Pumping Iron. The closest you get to supplements in this movie is seeing Lou Ferrigno pop a few pills. I don't even know what those would have been in 1975. I don't think you're doing things like branched-chain amino acids or mm. creatine supplements, maybe some sort of protein powder. Do you know if in this era they were tested for steroids when they did this? They were not. And so they really were on steroids. Oh, all of them. And okay. Arnold will say that. He was, everybody was. What about now? Can you do them now? It's banned from competition now. As but far while as you're know. training, and probably for most of your life, you're going to do them until a certain point where you don't. Yeah, as it is with a lot of sports, as it is with baseball, as we talk. Baseball about players right. are still getting caught for things, and they'll yeah. always say, "Well, I didn't know this. I'll accept my punishment, but I didn't mean to do it." Sure. In this sport, as much as, and maybe more so than any other sport that we talk about, when it's linked to steroids or performance-enhancing drugs or whatever the case may be. It's even more of a complicated thing, right? Because you're not talking about necessarily physical ability in the way we think about it in sport. You're talking about simply sculpting your body into, as Arnold talks about it, a work of art, a sculpture. So does that make it more acceptable, less acceptable, or the same as an athlete, let's say a professional cyclist or a baseball player, that does something similar, not because they're trying to enhance their body directly for that purpose, but rather as a means to becoming really good at something. Bret Hart, I mentioned as well, I think on Ready to Rumble anyway. Oh, wrestling, yeah. Wrestling for sure. But I remember Bret Hart talked about in his book that he took steroids at one point, didn't sound like it was very long, because he needed to recover from an injury. Because he wasn't going to make any money if he didn't get back on the road. So it wasn't a matter of, I need to look like the ultimate warrior. I just need to heal my body quickly. I will always have an opinion about steroids that's different than most people, which is, I wouldn't say I don't care, but I think it's such a crock. And as Chris Rock said it, I'll repeat this again i've probably said this 20 times in this podcast before and other episodes if you regular person could take a pill and be better at your job you'd do it you would in a second 
Well, no, I wouldn't care enough about my job necessarily to take a pill. Okay, if you know. care about your job, <laughs> like these guys obviously do, especially if it's a matter of Bret Hart, Mark McGuire, I need to work on my heel, my back, my whatever's broken yeah. up and ruined. Well, I you, want to get back on the field and play. I kid about my job specifically, but I agree with what you're saying. And it's not just get better at your job necessarily. Maybe it is because you love your job, but in the case of most of the people doing this stuff, it's because they're either on the periphery of professional sports, in which yeah. case you can make a ton of money and set yourself up for life, or you're already at that pinnacle and you want to stay there either because, again, like you talked about, they love the sport. Or if I take steroids, I might make $150 million. If I don't, maybe I'm hurt and I don't play ever again mm-hmm. or not nearly as much, or I make a fraction of that. If you hit somebody, if you take this, you can make $100 million. I think you would be almost psychopathic to turn that down. I mean, mm-hmm. how could you? Yeah, the sports writers and a lot of fans. I'm going to fold my arms, put my belt on my belt and say, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I know. Fuck it's, off. It's easy to take the high-minded road and view of things when you know you're never going to be in that position. Yes. And I have a conflicted view of it. I understand you can never effectively test for everything that's out there. The development of new drugs, and whether it's steroids as we think of them or something entirely different that we'll never really understand completely... There's so much money to be had at this. That will outpace your ability to detect it, especially as the technology becomes more sophisticated. Yep. And I think we found that out to be the case in any number of sports, cycling. and Lance Armstrong's and, thing, yeah, the way yeah. they recycled the pee or whatever the hell it was. Well, not just him, but cyclists generally. No, they are and, all doing it, exactly. Yeah, and, and footballers, soccer players, and then, of course, you get the baseball or football players. You have to accept that you're never going to be able to weed it out entirely. So do you just say, okay, we're going to provide the athletes the most education we possibly can about the potential health risks and downfalls and say, okay, here you go. You've attended all our seminars. What you do now is up to you. Or do you determine that to be too risky to the athletes because maybe they don't have the education or the intelligence? That's a little bit of a demeaning thing to say, I know. But maybe it's a lot of these guys get into this, especially not so much bodybuilding, but baseball and football and whatnot, when they're 17, 18 years old as professionals, or at least 20 years old. So, yes, I'll back you up. They are dumb by normal people standards because they're fucking children. Some of them are. I think a lot of them are. They didn't go to school, probably. They didn't need to. They went to school literally, but they didn't actually go to class. Yeah, so maybe they're not equipped to understand the risks entirely or what it means for them down the line. Maybe yeah. they're saying, okay, well, I'll take that risk not understanding, okay, well, I'm going to be a shriveled, shallow a man in 15 years because of what I'm doing to my body now. Or do you take the view that it's their choice to make, so let them do it? Or do you take the view that it's unfair to people that don't want to do that to themselves but understand they don't have a chance to compete if they don't? It's rare that I say, okay, well, I can see pros and cons to both sides of this argument. And I could see people taking three or four different positions, you know, from black and white to shades of gray as far as the permissibility of performance-enhancing drugs in sports generally and bodybuilding in particular. I could probably say you can make a valid argument for any one of those positions. It was 100% prevalent in the sport then. There's a push now towards natural bodybuilding. So people that might take supplements, but they won't take any drugs or anything like that. It's still a bit of a niche thing within this sport. I wonder if it ever becomes a prevalent push. And I'm not talking about drug testing because I know that happens in mainstream bodybuilding, but I'm talking about bodybuilders that self-identify as quote-unquote natural bodybuilders. If it becomes too popular, are people going to identify as natural and then take the performance-enhancing drugs anyway just to achieve success again? Oh, maybe so. I think that's just where you get to at a certain point. Well, through all this conversation, let me take a sip of something that should probably be illegal, booze. Is your performance enhanced by that beverage, Ryan? Probably not, but it's also something that would never be made legal if it was invented yesterday, nor would sugar. So that's another reason why people get their 
bottom lip out and their arms folded can stuff it up their ass because you're taking drugs in your own way. They're just legal. All right, a little bit more I want to say about the numbers. We've been waiting on the podcast. We just do this now. The Rotten Tomatoes, 94% of critics like this film for an average of 6.9 out of 10 and 84% of audiences. I'm surprised to see this documentary was that well liked, 94 and 84. I think they call this a docudrama, don't they? Well, just, okay, just this movie that is that popular. I've seen it before. You had seen it before. I don't love it. I think it's fine. It was just an interesting one. I don't know where I even thought of it. I said to you, let's do Pumping Iron. We'll never do bodybuilding again. We've done some weird ones lately, like murder ball, quad rugby, bring it on, cheerleading. Yeah. We'll do some more traditional sports the rest of the year, I think, for the most part. Baseball and football will come back into play soon. But it's a mild thumbs up from me. It's certainly compelling to watch Arnold. Star Wars was the big hit that year, 1977. I couldn't find any box office numbers on this. It probably didn't make that much money. Documentaries really didn't until the more modern era. And I know you love these ones. The name in France was Arnold Le Magnifique. Oh, wow. How do you become Le Magnifique? Do you have to achieve a certain level of physical perfection or just notoriety? Maybe There's... both for him. Mm. There's also a French guy in this, Serge Nubray. He's the black guy who finished his second in the over 200 competition in 1975. So maybe that's why the French people would have wanted this documentary released. They probably would have anyway, but it doesn't hurt when you've got one of the major players in the movie. Although I don't think the guy ever speaks in the movie, the black guy, the only black guy I can remember even seeing. But he is second in the competition, so that means yeah. something. Franco wins the under 200, and then he goes against Arnold because it's over versus under, and there's an overall winner, and Arnold beats his friend. And then Franco won the overall contest the next year. He's from Sardinia, by the way. That's... Italy, around Italy at least. Apparently he's from a tiny town of like 2,000 people and the only shot of him in his hometown in this movie is him lifting the rear end of a car for no reason except that... To show off. Yeah, well, apparently the filmmakers are just like, okay, we need to have a shot of you in your hometown, Franco. Go do something interesting. Mm -hmm. He's like, there's nothing to do here. Go lift that car then. He's like, all right. (laughs) This movie is so international. Arnold's from Austria. Mike Katz, Ken Waller are Americans and so is Lou Ferrigno. But then Lou Ferrigno is different because of the deafness. He just sounds like a different kind of person. So, yeah, he's American. But when you see him in The Hulk, of course, he's terrifying. I don't know if you, but you, but you probably didn't see The Hulk when you were a kid. I did. Not. I did. Okay, you would have had to see it in reruns, though, yes. I guess. Yeah. yeah. I think I was watching it when it was actually on TV. Was it? And I was scared by that guy. When did that air? Was it early 80s or late, late 70s? Late 70s, early 80s. Around this time, he probably got The Hulk based on his fame from yeah. doing this. I watched it as a kid, but then when I saw Arnold later versus what you see of Lou in The Incredible Hulk. I always pictured Arnold as being bigger than Lou. Arnold's not. No, he's not. Arnold's competition weight in this movie was like 240 or something like that, 245, and Lou's was about 270. So he's a much bigger guy. Arnold apparently was in line to play the Hulk in that series, but the reason why they didn't cast him is as big as he is. He wasn't as big as they wanted him to be because Bill Bixby is a little guy, and of course Arnold's way bigger than him, but they wanted that much bigger than him contrast with Ferrigno. Lou's got a little bit of a foreign cast to him in this movie. That's true, yeah. Obviously, he's from an Italian family, right? And you see the giant Italian meal. That kind of like reminded me, of, frankly, of my family's meals. Enormous salad, and you got the pizza or something sitting off to the side. The never-ending and, food. And you've just had a main course and yeah. probably a pasta dish. His portrayal in this movie is interesting. He was really upset with the way he was portrayed when he first saw this movie. He thought it made him look like an idiot. And he was very young. I think he was four years younger than Arnold, so he would have been in his early 20s, like 24-ish. As a guy that grew up with that hearing disability, and that led to a developmental speech impediment, Mm. as often happens, I think, with people who are mostly or completely deaf, he didn't feel capable of expressing himself in the way he wanted during the filming of this movie. And he said in later years that all he wanted to do, especially in those scenes of him approaching competition in South Africa, all he wanted to do was be the guy that was like Arnold. He's out schmoozing, having Mm -hmm. fun all the time, going to dinners and breakfasts and hanging out with people. But that's not him. He wanted that to be him, but he didn't have the capability to express that. So it's not him as far as this movie was concerned. 
it's only later when people really latched onto him as a sort of sympathetic underdog figure in this movie, the soft-spoken guy who's, I don't want to say whipped by his father into shape, but his father doesn't really ever seem to give him too much credit. You see scenes of him mm. saying, your back looked fantastic up there or something like that, but most of the time it's him telling Lou to be better or be more confident. He's a hockey dad. He's a bit of a hockey dad in the bodybuilding world as far as this movie is concerned. It's kind of interesting how people's perceptions of this movie have evolved in response to the crowd's reaction to it. We talked about Ken Waller. He was a bit of a prankster in real life, and he thought it was going to be fun to display that in the movie. The audience just hated him for, for years, it. by the sounds of it. Yeah. Mike Katz came off as a nice guy mm-hmm. and a well-liked guy. But lovable loser, though. Lovable loser, right? And I don't know if that was necessarily the case either, but that's kind of the impression you're left with. Butler and Fiore, Fiore whatever, are kind of lying to us then, aren't they? <laughs> Well, I think what they've been consistent in saying, and this is why I never, I guess, responded to the what did you think of this movie thing. I like Pumping Iron. I don't think it's a fantastic documentary. Seeing it twice is enough. Yeah. I find it more interesting having watched some of these interviews with people about it or watching that raw iron making Mm -hmm. of, because it really contextualizes a lot of the stuff in this that you see. And it gives you a lot of background into what they were trying to achieve as far as the narrative of the movie goes. They filmed like a hundred hours of raw footage for this, which yeah. is incredible for eighty-five minute movie. It's insane how much they must have. That's gone typical. Through. Typical for documentaries. I think Murderball was maybe not quite that much, but it was probably similar. Oh no, my god! Also for about an eighty-five minute movie. That shows you the dedication these filmmakers have to have. Because I can't imagine spending that much time recording it and then leaving it on the cutting room floor. Maybe some of it comes to light in later years, but most of it won't ever. Well, so kudos to Jeff Bartz and Lawrence Silk, the editors, and yeah. of course the. Filmmakers Butler and Fiore for doing this. By the way, another technical person we'll mention right now is Michael Small, the composer, with <laughs> his cheesy porn-like score. <laughs> I was surprised at how much it sounded like the cliche porn score. It really was. And like... that song, pump it up, pump it up. Everybody wants to live forever or something. If you go on YouTube, it just says pumping iron theme or something. But I think it also is called Everybody Wants to Live Forever. Anyway, whatever the hell that song is called, talk about corny and lame. What did you think of Arnold's supposed fabrications, lying about how, I missed my father's funeral, I was in the competition, I was building up to that. I read that wasn't true, and I read it was true, but it wasn't because he was going into a competition. And the other question I want to ask you is, what about the whole famous thing about this movie that Arnold psyched out Lou Ferrigno, which I think was fairly subtle. It wasn't like he was doing anything all that blatant. Arnold comes across gregarious and nice, maybe not nice, but gregarious and charismatic, again, I'll use that word, with everybody, including Lou. So what do you think of those two things? The way he was with Lou and the lies he was supposedly telling, or the tall tales, maybe that's a better way of putting it. I think one of the things about Arnold is, and I wonder how often this is true of people that achieve the level of success that he did at such a young age, is that he was laser-focused on things, and that doesn't mean that he was necessarily dead to feeling anything about, say, the passing of his father. But by his own admission in this movie and subsequently, like he and his father didn't have the greatest relationship. I don't know what his relationship was like with his mother, presumably better. And I guess you can argue, well, he should have gone back if he didn't want to go back for the funeral for his father's sake. To, and for hers. And yeah. for hers, to comfort her. But I think he has said he was in a great deal of denial. He probably wasn't the healthiest individual. Like I said, that comes of achieving a lot of success in one very particular field, and you kind of fixate on that. That's yeah. how you feel good about yourself, and then everything else just takes a back seat. I'm sure he felt something about the passing of his father, and the extent to which it was stated in this movie, I didn't go back for his funeral, and here's why. 
Well, I don't think he did go back for your sphere. I think that's a matter of fact, but it might have just been for other reasons. It might have been because he was in a different mental condition at that time. It was just one of those things that I think he played up to the nth degree for the purposes of trying to come across as that. And this is kind of interesting, actually. At times, he's portrayed as a very emotionless kind of mm-hmm. person, this movie, but at the same time, very charismatic, which is kind of a tough dichotomy. Almost like right? the Terminator. Yeah, except the Terminator isn't out there throwing little backhanded jabs at people, isn't No, but game. for an emotionless robot, especially in the very first movie, he's pretty charismatic, too. To a certain degree, I guess that's true. So, and then the mind game stuff, as it's portrayed in this movie, aside from the fact that during those interview portions... He announces he's going to do it to Lou. Yeah, and... Which they, makes me wonder, maybe they filmed that afterwards. Yes. I don't know if they filmed it before or after. I think that was, again, entirely played up. In the narrative, though, he's saying, I'm going to fuck with this guy. And then, as the movie plays out, fucks with this guy. Yeah. But then again, Lou is a grown man. He is, but I shouldn't... Childlike grown man. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit, at least in the way he's portrayed this. And I wonder how much of that is the way he's portrayed in the movie and how much of it is real life. How much of it is because he was still trying to come to grips with his speech impediment. I think what is true, though, is that Arnold and Lou both knew that in 1975, Lou had no real chance of beating Arnold. He wasn't quite ready. As enormous and impressive a man Mm -hmm. as he is by any mortal standards, by the standards of the Mr. Olympia pageant, I don't think he ever had a chance. The whole mind games thing was just to build the tension to make you believe that, okay, maybe this underdog character really does have a chance of dethroning the king. In reality, I don't think that was the case. Maybe the Surge guy did. Or even Franco when they went over versus under 200 in the very finals. Yeah, You're right, though. Lou was 24 years old. He's a kid. You don't have to win at 24 years old. And I think Lou did win future competitions, didn't he? He never won Mr. Olympia. He didn't ever win. I don't know what his professional record was. I don't think he actually competed in bodybuilding for much longer beyond this. I think... Because he got on the TV show. Yeah. Much like Arnold, I think he effectively retired shortly after. He came back later, as Arnold did. So I feel like this movie was almost a parody of itself. It's remarkably close to Zoolander in a lot of ways. We've talked about Ben Stiller already. (laughs) Maybe the music didn't help. That's part of the problem. It's just... Playing music score so bad. It's one of those movies I wish I'd watch with Bev in a way because then she could have mocked the living shit out of that. I was doing it by myself. It's so bad. And they played that song in the opening and closing credits. It's and rough. So Michael Small, who did good movies as a composer, but also did Jaws 4, Jaws Revenge. So we mentioned Raw Iron, the documentary, the making of, well, this is a documentary, but the making of in 2002. And then Generation Iron in 2013, and also Pumping Iron 2, the women. So there have been a lot of versions of Iron out there. And I also got a quote, Norm Peterson, great bodybuilder that he was from Cheers. <laughs> Somebody's posing in the scene in Cheers one time, and Norm says, I could do that, but I'd have to do it in shifts. <laughs> I'm the same. I could do one little muscle at a time, maybe. Maybe. You see the ballet sequence, and you see the work that goes into the posing routines. And then in competition, you see these guys in their posing routines and flexing. I think you kind of get a sense of how much effort actually goes into those posing routines and how tiring it must be because you're doing a couple of things at once as far as straining as hard as you can for 10 or 15 seconds per pose while also trying to suck in your abdomen. You want the smallest waist possible, the most definition. You're probably dehydrated and haven't had a good meal in 24 hours at this point to get that muscle definition. And after, what are the posing routines? 90 seconds in this movie that we see, maybe? Maybe it's longer, but they show them to be about that long, yeah. They just look deflated afterwards. And you see them psyching themselves up for that final pose a couple times. Lou is working out and getting his pump in the backstage area when Arnold won't shut the hell up. (laughs) 
<laughs> I see you. Arnold, I'm working. I'm getting ready. I'm working out. Well, I'm using the wrong voice, but <laughs> I'm using the Arnold voice for Lou, but it's supposed to be like a church in here. Quiet as a mouse. Yeah. Well, that's what it is, right? Because Lou is making noise and Arnold is telling him, stop it, Lou. But again, with a smile on his face. Listen, I think they were all good buddies in reality, and a lot of the conflicts were just played up for dramatic tension. And that's what you have to understand with this movie, is that the outcomes are real, the training is real, but some of the interrelationship stuff is just overblown for dramatic mm -hmm. tension as much. So as docudrama is a very fair point to I, make. I watched this particular scene, and it clanged so hard for a purported documentary. Like, these three guys never behave this way naturally. Ken Waller and two of his bodybuilding buddies are hanging out on like a random football field right. talking about how he's going to just screw with Mike Katz's head and then laughing and throwing the football in the most unnatural way possible. They filmed that after the competition. They came oh, back right. from the competition. Mm -hmm. That whole t-shirt thing had happened and the director said, okay, well, here's the angle. Ken's now going to be the heel and he's going to play it up. But that's why Mike Katz, after Ken won, is like, oh, that's fantastic. That's great. I got to shake his hand. I got to go talk to the guy. He's holding him to tears. Oh, yeah. Well, he's crushingly disappointed, but he and Ken were apparently pretty much best friends. So he was legitimately, ha well, while being distraught about placing fourth or whatever. Like, yeah, he didn't even get to the top three. It wasn't like yeah. it was Ken versus Mike. He was fourth. Yeah, he didn't get to the podium, but he was legitimately happy for the guy. And then they decided after the fact, okay, well, we got to play up the heel angle and let's have the scene where Ken talks about he's, he's going to really screw with Mike and just like Arnold's going to be a little bit of a quasi-villain for the relationship between him and Lou. It's actually kind of effective as much as some of those individual scenes might come across a little unnaturally. You find yourself rooting for certain people. And I did find myself rooting for Mike. Yeah, me too. He's the family guy. He just talks about how much he loves his kids. He's a teacher. And I found myself rooting for Franco and Lou as well, because Franco's the little underdog, kind of like the bulldog character, mm -hmm. and Lou is the young up-and-comer who's faced a lot of adversity for various reasons. And Arnold's the reigning champion of yeah. the world! Yeah, he's the cocky golden boy that's got it all and doesn't see how anyone's ever going to take it from him. So mm -hmm. I think it played well. I'm surprised by the numbers you talked about earlier. I wouldn't think it would have been received quite that highly as yeah. far as critics and audience. Liking it fine, but 94% Yeah, that's pretty huge. And this movie, probably more so than any documentary, docudrama, or whatever the case may be, can you think of a documentary in a niche field like this one that had the lasting impact that this has had? I preferred Murderball, the two documentaries we've covered, but you're right, as far as it being famous, this movie is still pretty well known. And it went a huge distance to popularizing physical fitness, to making it more mainstream. You can talk to people now, and they'll still know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. If you have any knowledge at all about movies or physical fitness, you'll know what this movie is. Yeah. Even the term pumping iron was popularized by this. That wasn't a common term. Sure, yeah. Mm. I and mean, there's a lot Pump to say for it. Up. Oh, please don't. <laughs> please don't. They filmed a ton of footage, but to get this thing done, Butler maxed out his credit cards personally. Like, this was a passion project for them, too. It wasn't just that these were filmmakers that wanted to make a quick buck. They wanted this niche sport to be out there in the public eye. They felt very strongly about it. He organized, Butler, that is, sorry, organized an exhibition where they had. Arnold and two other guys, I think maybe Frank Zane and the third name escapes me right now, essentially just stand up at podiums at the Met in New York or something like that. And people would pay to go in and see them as kind of physical piece of performance art to fund this movie and oh, to pay okay. Butler's credit card off. He's a showman. He's a showman. He went to extreme lengths to get this thing completed in a way that I can't imagine happening in 2019. Can you envision somebody putting on that kind of bodybuilding expo to fund a documentary about bodybuilding Not now? bodybuilding, but doing that kind of thing. Yeah, people are 
salesman. The equivalent would be put on Kickstarter and you try to appeal yeah, to people probably. that way probably. I've right? been saying for a while now, because of Donald Trump, that America's number one thing is they're not number one at very many things, but it's marketing. Yeah. Even though most of these people are not American in this movie, but they're great at marketing. What were your thoughts when they went to South Africa in this movie? Pretoria. Pretoria. That was one thing about it I'd forgotten. It had been years since I saw this in its entirety. I forgot that the competitions were held in South Africa. And, of course, this would have been the... During the apartheid. Apartheid. And all of the competitors that we see at least get to the final stages are all white. But there were scenes, at least during the initial weigh-ins, I think, where you saw some... Well, Surge is black. Surge is black, you're right. There were some other competitors that were there during the weigh-in scenes, I think, were also non-white competitors. Can you imagine what that would have been like, though, for these guys to go to South Africa to have to compete, especially if you're not a white athlete? Mm-hmm. It kind of blew my mind. And of course, everybody in the stands is white. So the country is doing Arnold to Duluth, psyching you out. Yeah. If you're going to talk about mental games, it's got to be a huge psychological advantage in Arnold's favor. I mean, I can't imagine it's comfortable for Surge to travel to South Africa during the height of apartheid mm-hmm. to compete in this Good point, thing. yeah. What's the movie about rugby with Matt Damon? Invictus? Invictus, yeah. But the Invictus game started post-apartheid, too. That was early 2000s? Because it's Nelson Mandela's idea. You know? Yeah. He got out of jail, and according to that movie, it's one of the first things he cared about. I'm trying to think of another situation where we've watched a movie where athletes are being asked to be put in such a socially regressive situation. You're I right, though. We forget that sometimes when it comes to any sort of professional athlete, that you have to travel around, in this case, the world, but in the big four sports, and other sports that stay in North America, maybe not traveling that far. But you have to deal with your regular life, and you have to deal with racism. Yeah. Just imagine being a black athlete going to the South playing football, which they would say is not that big a deal. Hey, we like those guys. They're different. They do the right thing again all over again. It's different. They're not the N-word. But you're trying to focus on what you're supposed to be doing and something like this that's we think of fairly simple. We just got to pose and work out for months and years. And then when it comes to it, just pose. But then also get out of your own head but you're in a place that doesn't want you there because you dare to have black skin. Exactly. It's a fair point, yeah. It's not something we often talk about, even in those movies that take place in bygone eras when I'm sure racism and that kind of thing was... was. probably even worse. It may be something we should be more cognizant of when we watch, particularly documentaries, but even some of these movies that take place in bygone years. If we were to do Glory Road, it's a basketball movie I like quite a bit. It's all about how this basketball team is all black and they deal with a lot of racism. That'll be an interesting one to hit sometime. Mm-hmm. Then. Pretty solid movie from 2006, I think it was. How was that water? Refreshing and crisp. I feel well <laughs> hydrated, Ryan. Thank and you. My glass is empty. I've only had one. Got to have some more. It is a Friday and I'm finally off work. I think we covered the depiction of the sport already. Sure. And can you score? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Arnold sure can because he's always coming. We didn't do that many Arnold impressions this movie, actually. I can't. In this podcast, I mean. I tried in the mirror this morning to do the Arnold. I, Not doing I, it well is fine. It's one of those guys you don't want to do that well, really. It would come off not even close. You would have to ask, what in the hell were you trying to do? We can always resort to doing Batman. <laughs> or we can do Lou from Major League. Piss on your contract, Arnold. I did that better when we did Major League. I'm going to leave the impressions to you for the most part, Ryan. I think you've got it in the bag. I want you to look at the guy beside you and see he'll fight for that inch with you. <laughs> and you give it Sunday. Now, what inch are you talking about there? Are you talking about the extra inch on the bicep? Oh, one more thing. Did you notice Arnold's got a chub early on in the movie when they show him posing? I think he's won one of the competitions. And he's got those tiny little shorts on. Looks like he's got a little bit of wood, a little turned on. <laughs> he's about to be coming. I will be coming in the moment. I'm a little hard right now. Well, maybe he had his pump on, man. Like, <laughs> he you has know, pumping his dick, too. Yeah. <laughs> pump the dick now it's a good thing that is not one aspect of the body proportions that the judges are mm. judging because if these guys were pumped full of steroids in the 70s i can't imagine that the shoulders chest legs 
and junk were all well proportioned. <laughs> I think there was going to be a little bit of shrinkage in there Certainly somewhere. Certainly not the testes, the testicles. Okay, in two weeks, it will be September 5th, and the NFL season will be kicking off that very day, Thursday. It's become a more common thing in recent years with football. So we're going to talk about high schoolers tossing around the old pigskin in a movie I've liked way more than the first time I saw it, when I liked it fine, but now I think it's one of the better football movies ever, and that is Friday Night Lights. Not, of course, the TV series, the movie. You're ranking it up there, then. I really like it a lot. It's on demand. It's on Netflix again, too. So a lot of ways you can watch it. Oh, it'll be an interesting one to talk about. There's and a we'll, lot of great football movies out there to rank it against. The depiction of that sport, very good, as I recall. Hmm. Billy Bob Thornton, good coach. But will the edits match up with the fantastically groovy edits of The Longest Yard? No, they're not like that at all. I don't think there's anything <laughs> like that. They're not at all as Maybe groovy. there's some, what do you call it, multiple boxes. I don't recall, though. I don't think so. And less cross-dressing, cheerleading happening. For, None of that. For gags yeah. in Friday Night Lights. Not much comedy in Friday Night Lights. It's a pretty intense movie, pretty serious movie. Well, in fairness, there wasn't much comedy in The Longest Yard, either. They tried for it, though. Yeah. All right, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. Find us in any one of those areas. We're on TopNinerProject.com, of course, the website. All the podcasts that I have ever been involved in with Chris or with Bev are there. Want to go hit the gym for a couple hours, Ryan? I want to get my pump. Get your pump. Take it easy, dudes. I know that you will. Pretty good. Bad. Adequate. Adequate.